Okay, Mark 8 is the passage we'll be in, so if you've got a Bible, you can leave it open there. Let's pray for a moment together. Our Father, our prayer now is that you would do what this passage says, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear, our minds to understand, so that we might know who Jesus is and not miss it for our eternal good, the good of all those around us, and for your great glory. Come do this, we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the phrase déjà vu is a French term, and it just simply means already seen, right? And that's probably a good phrase to describe the passage we're looking at today, because if you've been following with us in the gospel account of Mark, you've already seen this. You read this and you go, this is déjà vu, right? We've already seen this. For example, just two chapters ago, if you were with us, you saw Jesus feed the multitudes with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And now in chapter 8, in these first 21 verses, you see it happen all over again, right? In fact, if you go back to chapter 6, if you remember there, Jesus had a crowd of many thousands in front of him with some loaves of bread and a few small fish. He's going to feed that multitude. And when the story's done... He's going to end up in a boat with his disciples. If you remember, when he walked past them, by the way, on the water, got into the boat, and by the time they're in the boat, it'll become obvious that the disciples don't get him. They don't understand who he is. They've seen, but they haven't seen. And Mark ends that section by telling us that their hearts were hardened and they did not understand. Now, you're in chapter 8, and guess what you see? Jesus has a crowd of a few thousand people in front of him. He's got a few loaves of bread and some small fish. He's going to feed them miraculously. And then by the end of this story, he's going to be in a boat with his disciples. And it's going to become obvious that they don't get him. They don't understand. In fact, by verse 21, Jesus is going to say to them, Do you not understand? And are your hearts hardened? So what gives? What's with the deja vu? What's with the repetition? In fact, if you think about it, Mark is the shortest account of all the four gospel accounts. He's very limited in what he says. He's shorter than all the others. He doesn't say all that could be said. So with such limited space, why does he reiterate a miracle and a passage that sounds exactly the same as what we've already gone through? Right? He, he doesn't tell us everything that Jesus did, all the things that he could have put into this. Why does he spend such pre- precious real estate to go through an account that sounds exactly like an account we've already gone through? Why would he do that? In fact, some scholars find it so odd, the striking similarities between the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 in chapter 8 that they eventually just conclude Mark must have just gotten mixed up. He just must have messed up the details a bit. It couldn't have possibly happened twice. Jesus couldn't have gone through this whole routine again. Mark probably just made a mistake, and we have this second account. Now, what I'd say to those scholars is that they probably weren't parents, right? Because if you're parents, you know all about repetition and repeating yourself over and over again. Tell me, parents, those of you who are parents, have you said things like, how many times do I have to tell you? right? Has that come out of your mouth? Have you ever said, I've told you a thousand times? Said things like, when are you going to understand? Said things like, are you hearing me up there? 
right? How, how many times? Just yesterday, I remember, with one of my spawn, right? That's what I call them when I'm mad at them. When, when I love them, they're my children. When, they're, when I don't, they're my spawn. One of my spawn, by the end of the day, I literally said, how many times have I said this just today? I literally said 47,000 times today. I get very exaggerating when I'm, I'm angry. 47,000 times today, I've told you this same exact thing, spawn. Right? When are you going to listen? Right? If you're a parent, you know all about that world. Right? You know that part of parenting is teaching and reteaching, training and retraining, hoping that they're going to get it. Well, what is common to parenting is also, it seems, common to making disciples. That if Jesus is going to make disciples, he's going to teach and reteach. He's going to train and retrain. He's going to essentially drive them around the same cul de sac over and over again till they get it. He's going to give them ample opportunity. Do you get this? Do you understand? Is this coming through? And, and I want you to hear that's good news. It was good news for his dull disciples then that didn't get it. It's good news for dull disciples like you and me as well. That Jesus will drive around the same cul-de-sac with us until we get it. So Mark 8 verse 1. The story starts with these three simple words, In those days. What in those days does is simply connect us to the story that we saw last week. It's saying we're still in the same general time frame of what we saw last week. And last week, we saw that Jesus has showed up in the Decapolis. That's Gentile territory. Gentile meaning not Jewish. People who are far away from God. Jesus had shown up in their territory, and he still seems to be in that place. It's still in those days that he's doing ministry. Last week, he had healed a man who was deaf and mute. And now, in those days, while he's still in that Gentile territory, a crowd gathers. I want you to remember again, like we said last week, this is the same region that had begged Jesus in chapter 5 to leave them. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But now there are two missionaries running around the Decapolis. One is the demon-possessed man from chapter 5 who had been healed. The other is the deaf-mute man in chapter 7 who had been healed. And now these two are running throughout the Decapolis telling everyone what the Lord had done. So much so that when we get to 8 verse 9, we hear that a crowd of some 4,000 people in the same region that didn't want Jesus to even stay now is so connected to Jesus that for three days they haven't left his side. For three days, they've been hanging on every word that comes from his mouth, begging him to teach more. For three days, they've wandered with Jesus, now finding themselves in a remote place. This is what it says, 8 verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Mark wants us to see that just like in chapter 6, when he saw the crowd of the 5,000 Israelites, the Jewish people in Jewish territory, now Jesus sees a crowd. And again, Mark wants you to know the impulse that came into his heart, the emotion that flooded his being, was compassion. Except the detail that stands out to us is now he's looking at a crowd of Gentiles. 
People who don't know their right from their left in terms of morality or spirituality. People who wouldn't be able to tell you who Moses was, who couldn't recite the commandments to you. People who have been pagan and idolaters and, and line up wrong on all the social questions, who don't have morality at all. All those people, a crowd of 4,000 of them, and what fills up Jesus' heart is compassion. He looks on this crowd of people and he feels compassion on this predominantly Gentile crowd. Mark wants you to notice that. He wants you to pay attention to that. He wants you to see Jesus feeling compassion. And, and I read that this word compassion is this word that's connected to sort of like your internal organs, like your guts. As if Mark is trying to say, Jesus felt this gut-wrenching compassion for them. He looked at this crowd of people that were far away and from within, from his guts, he felt compassion for them. It's a wonderful thought that that's what fills up the heart of Jesus when he sees this people in need. They had come three days. I remember a, a seminary buddy of mine and myself, we were in New York City. I mean, bustling New York City, millions of people. And I remember we had come to this red light and we were seeing like this sea of humanity, these crowds of people. And, and he turned to me and he said, Jay, when you see this many people, what, what do you feel? And I immediately said, nothing, right? I don't know. And, and, and I said, what, why? What do you feel? And he's like, oh, don't, don't worry about it. And I said, no, no, tell me, what do you feel? And he said, I, I just can't imagine how many of these people don't know Jesus and, and, and how many of them are lost and, and my heart is overwhelmed. And, and I said, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I felt also. I, I just, I didn't want to say that, right? I, I, that always stuck with me. I mean, I, I'd imagine that resembles the heart of Jesus. This Jesus saw this sea of humanity and, and cared enough that they've been with him for a few days and doesn't even want them to go back without some food. I have compassion, gut-wrenching compassion on them. One writer said it this way. He's got a good sentence that's worth noting for us. He says, There is a lesson in this of people for every age that your supposed enemies are neither forsaken nor beyond Jesus' compassion. It's a good word for us. To his Jewish disciples, he is saying, to a sea of people that line up opposite them on everything, I have gut-wrenching compassion. In every age, people should know that your supposed enemies are not beyond the compassion or care of Jesus Christ. In our day, Jesus, Jesus would be saying, like he says to Gentiles and Jews, he'd be saying to conservatives and liberals, he'd be saying to Democrats and Republicans in our day, He'd be saying to folks who just came out of a pro-life rally and met with a bunch of folks who met, came out of a pro-choice rally. He'd be saying to people who are in the Black Lives Matter movement and All Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, and, and it'd be like the Black Lives Matter and the KKK sitting down together. Is Jew and Gentile. And he says to them, I have compassion. In a startling way that his disciples were to get, he has compassion on a people we wouldn't imagine he has compassion on. He desires to do good for them. He desires to meet their need. In fact, I imagine that Mark wants even his readers, some of whom are Roman at the time, to see the heart of Jesus having compassion. So, Jesus does what he did in chapter 6. He makes this known to his disciples and makes the feeding of the crowd suddenly their problem. Right? Right? 
Back in chapter 6, he says, hey, they need something to eat. You give them something to eat. And now he says, I have compassion on this crowd. So now, here is the disciples' moment to shine, right? There's a crowd of people in front of them, just like in chapter 6. Jesus has just declared that he has compassion on them, just like in chapter 6. They're in a remote, desolate place, just like in chapter 6. They should have bells going off. Jesus is God. All throughout the story, we've seen he does what only God can do. Yahweh fed his people in the wilderness. Jesus fed his people. Now we know he can do what only God can do. And so he's done it before. He can do it now. They respond, verse 4, and his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Don't you love that? Now, some would say, and maybe there's something to it, that maybe this isn't a question of unbelief. Maybe they're just essentially saying, look, we can't do anything. If, if someone's going to do it, you got to do something. And maybe they're just throwing this onto Jesus and saying, you can take care of this. But, but some scholars say this possibly couldn't have been a question of theirs because how could they have forgotten so quick what Jesus did? I mean, who could possibly forget? It's chapter 6, he fed 5,000. Now chapter 8, 4,000. Who could possibly forget? And I'd say to that, we all do. We all do. You, you know that before I said that. Tell me you can't relate. Has God ever shown up for you and come through for you only for you to doubt that he will the very next time you need something? Have, has that happened? He's come through for you and he's been faithful to you and he's shown up just when you needed so that the very next time you're in peril, you go, oh my God, what are we going to do? You, you see yourself in these disciples. I see myself. I hear my voice in their voice and see my face in their face. And so they ask, how can one feed in this desolate place? The entire story of God's people is a, a people who constantly forget what the Lord does. You read the Old Testament, the whole story of Israel is a story of a people that have amnesia. He'll do one thing only for them to get to the next and forget what he did. Jesus now, verse 5, says to them, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he also said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. Now, for the careful reader, you go, there's so many similarities between this sequel and the first time. Right? He asks, how many loaves do you have? Just like he did the first time. They resp respond by saying, seven. They bring him some fish again, just like last time. He has them sit on the ground. Just like last time, what does he do? He gives thanks, he breaks, and gives to his disciples. And they give to the crowd. And just like last time, everyone eats and is satisfied, and so much so that they have seven hampers full of leftover bread. And by the end of this miracle, you're supposed to see in chapter 8 exactly what you saw in chapter 6. Jesus is God. He can do what only God can do because He is God. 
As Yahweh fed his people in the wilderness, so now Yahweh has come in the flesh in Jesus Christ, and there's this multitude of people in the wilderness, and Jesus does what only God can do. The added difference here that Mark wants you to notice is, and, and who he fed was a multitude of Gentiles. That Yahweh, who had fed Israel in the wilderness, and Jesus, who had fed the Jews in chapter 6, is now feeding a multitude of pagan, idolatrous, godless people. And he has met their need and satisfied them so that they have leftovers as well. And what's even more remarkable is, at this meal would be some Jews and Gentiles sitting together at a meal hosted by Jesus. And surely this should be somewhat of a preview of what Mark will speak of later. We, we notice back in chapter 6 that the language Mark uses for how Jesus went about this miracle is exactly the same that will show up in chapter 14 at Jesus' Last Supper. At Jesus' Last Supper, he'll take the bread and he'll give thanks and he'll break it and he'll give it to his disciples, except there he will say, this is my body given for you. What a preview that now, sitting with Gentiles and Jews at the feast of Jesus, which he hosts this meal, he takes the bread and he breaks it after giving thanks and gives to this crowd. Surely this is a picture of what Jesus had come to do for the whole world. That he has come to offer himself as the bread of life, not just for the people who are near, but for the people who are far. Not for the Jews alone, but for the Gentiles as well. And now Jew and Gentile are sitting in this field together, hosted by Jesus at this meal where he takes the bread, gives thanks, breaks it, and gives it to them. Surely we are supposed to see this is what Jesus came into the world to do. What's even more staggering for us as we've been following the story is if you remember, there was that woman in chapter 7, the Syrophoenician woman, right? The Gentile woman who had come to Jesus and said, could you please heal my daughter? And they have this exchange that is hard for us to understand almost at first. The bread shouldn't be given to the dogs. It should be given to the children. She responds by saying, but even the dogs eat some of the crumbs. And so her request to Jesus was what? Give us Gentiles just at least some of the crumbs off your table. That was the request. All we're asking for is that you would wipe off, I didn't need that, wipe off just some crumbs from your table and we'll lick that up off the floor. And Jesus' response to that question is, I have not come to give you crumbs. I have come to feed a multitude with loaves of bread so that they eat and are satisfied and have seven hampers full of leftovers. That's his response to the Syrophoenician woman. That's what I've come into this world to do. Now listen, this miracle is crystal clear. It shows that Jesus is God, that he is the bread of heaven come down, not just for those who are near, but those who are far, for all his people, and he has come to be broken for them. It's right there for you to see it. Except Mark tells us nobody sees it. It's right there, right in front of your eyes. And seeing, no one sees. No one understands. No one gets it. In fact, Mark shows us two groups of people now who don't get it. One is the Pharisees. You'd expect that. Look at verse 10. Immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. 
And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Jesus leaves the Gentile territory, comes on shore, the Jewish territory, and as soon as he arrives, there's a welcome party of Pharisees to greet him. Except that's saying too much. They're not there to welcome him or greet him. The text tells us they've come out to argue with him, to pick a fight. And they ask him, give us a sign from heaven that we may know essentially who you are. And Mark tells us the reason they asked, us, asked this was to test him. Right? They have already seen some signs. They've seen miracles. But if you remember back in Mark, they concluded Jesus was doing what he was doing by the power of Beelzebub. They had concluded that Jesus was demonic. That's what was happening here. And so now they sigh. Give us some sign from heaven. That is, make the Father show up in some way to demonstrate that you are, in fact, have divine authority for the things that you do. It's incredible. I think what we should hear from this is, listen, God has no problem showing up to the humble seeker. To the one who says to God, please show me that you're there. Please show me that you're real. God has no problem condescending to a humble seeker. I remember Joe in college. His story was Lisa one night told him about Jesus. He went out into the night sky and said, if you're real, show me. And that night, the brother got saved. God has no problem condescending to the humble request of a sincere seeker. What he will not do is pander to your pride. He will not let the Pharisees play God and say, if God does this, then I'll believe. And who's God in that situation? You are. You get to tell him what he will do, and when he does it, then you'll consent and you'll believe. If you do this, then I'll believe. Until then, I won't. To which Jesus sighs in his spirit. The same thing we saw last week when he was broken up about sin and the consequences of sin and the hardness of unbelief. He sighs in his spirit and he simply says, no sign will be given to this generation. All the miracles that could be done have been done. You'll never see them right. Your heart is so far gone, you'll never see them. I could do, I could rise from the dead and you won't believe. No sign will be given to this generation. And then Jesus, it says, left them. Verse 13. It's a stunning, simple phrase. He had come to his own, his own rejected him, and now he left them. Verse 13. He leaves them. And now, it's one thing if you go, okay, Jesus' opponents didn't get him. You, you almost didn't expect the Pharisees to get him. What's shocking is, neither do the people you expect to get him. Throughout Mark, the people you'd imagine would at least get Jesus. His mother, his brothers, his family, his disciples, the ones who have been in and not out Right? Jesus talks in parables to the crowd, but then he gathers his disciples and says, I'm going to give you the secret things of the kingdom. They are left in parables, but he explains everything plainly to them. They who've been with him, they who've seen the miracles, who had access to the room where he did a miracle no one else got to see, they who had been around him all the time. Mark says, they don't get him either. The shocking thing is the opponents of Jesus don't get him, but neither do the ones you'd expect would. Verse 13, he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they, that's the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. 
And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So here's the scene. Just like in chapter 6, after the miracle, he gets into a boat with his disciples. Now in chapter 8, after the miracle, he gets into a boat with his disciples. And now in the boat, it seems that somebody has forgotten lunch. That's the simple situation. There's at least 13 of them. They only brought one loaf of bread. And all of a sudden, into that situation, right? They're thinking about bread. There's been bread plenty for the last few days. The miracle is just done. Jesus seizes on that moment, like a parent training a child, seizes on that to say, listen, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven's like yeast. Yeast works its way, a little yeast through a whole batch. And so he's warning them. You see the unbelief and the opposition of the Pharisees and Herod. You be careful of that. A little of that in your heart can suddenly rise and take over. He's giving them a warning. Be careful. Be careful of a little unchecked sin that reigns in your heart that can spread like gangrene everywhere. Be careful. Watch out. Every pastor could tell you of friends he went to seminary with who literally spent thousands of dollars, years of their life to study the finest details of theology. Every pastor would tell you of friends he went to school with who had a little batch of unbelief who now no longer walk with Jesus. Jesus is warning his people. He's warning you. Beware of a little unchecked unbelief. Beware of a little tolerated sin. Beware of a little sin that you appease and, and you, you're okay with and you tame and, and you try to manage rather than cutting off. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the op op opposition of Herod and what you see in them. Jesus is teaching these disciples in that moment about weighty spiritual things, matters of their soul, life and death hang in the balance, and here's how they connect the dots and hear it. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Don't you love these disciples? They go, okay, wait a minute. Jesus just talked about leaven. That's yeast. There's yeast in bread. We didn't bring bread. He's upset about lunch. That's, that's their conclusion. He's upset about lunch. We didn't bring lunch. Oh my goodness, what are we? There's 13 of us and there's only one loaf of bread. What are we going to do to eat? Do you get what they're saying? 13 of us and we only have one loaf. And, and we didn't bring lunch, and he just told us about yeast, and, and we have no bread. Brothers, you want to go, you, you can't possibly be this dull, can you? Right? With, with five loaves, he fed 5,000. With seven loaves, he fed 4,000. If you've got 13 of you and one loaf, you should invite a whole city onto the boat because it's not enough. I mean, you don't have enough people compared to the math he can do. You have too little people, not too many. You have too much bread for what you need. This is Jesus. He is, he is teaching you about weighty soul-level things, and you're wondering about lunch. And so Jesus says to them, verse 17, and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? I wonder what tone he said this, by the way. I've been thinking all week, was it kind and compassionate? Was he angry and frustrated? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? 
Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then he schools them. He teaches them. When I broke the five loaves of the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. Okay. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. So it's almost like Jesus saying, you obviously remember all the facts. You remember everything as it happened. And yet, verse 21, he said to them, do you not yet understand? You, you have crystal clear memory of everything that happened, and you don't get it. You don't see. And the staggering, striking thing that Mark is showing us is that the same batch of unbelief in the hearts of Jesus' opponents resides in Jesus' friends and in his disciples as well. I mean, literally, Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees are in the same boat. None of them get it. They've seen all there is to see, heard all there is to hear, and they don't get it any more than the Pharisees do. The opponents of Jesus don't understand, but neither do his disciples. And I think, friends, for us this morning, this passage gives us then a warning, a caution. Jesus is saying to us, beware, watch out. Because Mark wants you to see, as he's shown you many times already, you can be right next to Jesus and miss him. You can be around him and close to him and not see him. You can be around all of this every week and miss it. What, what a sobering word that is. What a word of caution that we should hear. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Is it not sobering that we could raise up sons and daughters who have heard everything there is to hear, seen every story there is to see, and miss it all? Isn't it a sobering thing? They're not even growing up, I want to presume, like some of us grew up. They're learning gospel-centered theology. They're connecting dots you didn't connect till you were in your 30s that you're just starting to connect now. They're growing up with it. Isn't it a sobering word? You can grow up with all this stuff and miss Jesus. Isn't it a sobering word for you that you could be here every week and whereas others see something in the Bible, you never seem to see it. Isn't it a sobering thing that where others hear something in the preaching, you never seem to hear? It's a sobering word that you could be around Jesus for three and a half years and still be Judas at the end. It's a word of caution to us. Beware. Watch out. And the reason that is, is because the other thing this passage teaches us is that unless God himself gets involved, none of us see. Unless God himself intervenes, none of us hear. This passage shows us God himself has to get involved. It, it makes us desperate as a people that say, unless you touch these eyes, unless you open these ears, they'll never see, they'll never hear. So come and touch me. In fact, that's what the stories sort of bookending this miracle are about. Jesus just healed a man who was deaf. He put his fingers in his ears so that we're supposed to cry out, do that to my ears. In what we'll see next week, Jesus heals a man who's blind 
so that we're supposed to cry out, do that to my eyes. Unless you get involved in my life, unless you get involved in my children's life, unless you get involved in my neighbor's life, my co-worker's life, they'll never see. So desperately we plead him to touch blind eyes and open deaf ears. But this also, this passage encourages us as well. And let me just end with that. This passage encourages us as well because when you think of the big story, is it not uh, a wonderful thing for your soul to remember that these blind, deaf, hard-hearted, dull disciples are the ones that change the whole world and let the whole world know about Jesus? Doesn't that give your heart some hope? That these dull, these hard-hearted, these deaf and blind disciples, once touched by Jesus Christ, are the ones that not only saw and heard, but caused the whole world to see and hear. In fact, what you and I hear and see is based on their testimony. It's a good word. And so that means for your soul, for your son's and daughter's soul, for your neighbor's soul, for the parts of the world that are too far gone and can never come, it gives hope to everyone. No one is far, too far beyond him. No one is too far gone that he can't touch and make them see and make them hear. All that is required for, is for him to touch just like the man that we'll meet next week. Let's pray together.